Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Hey, guys. You know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey there, I'm Scott Rank, host of the podcast History Unplugged. Now, it really is a dream come true to get paid to talk about history without all the stress while still being able to make a living. And I did it with Spreaker from iHeart. Not only did they make it super easy to monetize my podcast, but ad revenue is three to four times higher with Spreaker than with any other host I've worked with. So if you want to turn your passion into a podcast and give this a try, visit Spreaker.com. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com. Get paid to talk about the things you love. The Laundronauts, a potentially untrue tale based on actual events. A young boy is shoved into a washing machine and vanishes. His friends try to rescue him, only to discover a magical world beyond the machine. Season one stars Ed Asner and me, John Cameron Mitchell. Find J.D. Belzell and bring him back home safely. Listen to The Laundronauts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Anita Hill. You probably know me, or think you do. I've learned firsthand about our country's shortcomings. And despite it all, I still believe we can solve society's biggest problems. My new podcast, Getting Even, is about equality and what it takes to get there. Listen to Getting Even on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I have to say that when I learned that this was one person, I was a little flabbergasted. I really was because these artists, yes, they're all around the same period, but their styles are very, very different. And he did a good job. I mean, there are other fakes in art history. And as I used to like to joke when I gave talks, the best fakes are still hanging on people's walls. You know, they don't even know or suspect that they're fakes. By 2002, an unlikely trio of con artists had grown rich from their forgery scheme. Glafira Rosales had worked her charms and unearthed a dazzling collection of abstract expressionist paintings destined for Anne Friedman to acquire for the Knoedler Gallery. Anne convinced herself that the works were genuine. She was desperate to squeeze every dollar of profit she could from the mysterious works works that had no provenance. Anne had bought the paintings for unthinkably low prices and sold them at sky-high markups. The profit margin was so high that the Nodler had come to rely on the Mr. X Jr. collection for its very survival. Meanwhile, the fraudsters were living the American dream. Carlos Bergantinos, the ideas man, Pei Shen Quan, the artist, 
Anne Glafira Rosales, the resourceful salesperson, had executed a scheme that was paying enormous dividends. Along with rising profits, however, came increased risk. By 2002, Jack and Fran Levy had spent upwards of $4.3 million acquiring masterworks from Nodler. The biggest prize was a $2 million Jackson Pollock, identified simply as Untitled 1949. It had a greenish cast and measured 12 by 18 inches. It was small for a Pollock, but impressive all the same. Before the sale could be finalized, however, Jack Levy insisted that the Pollock be vetted by IFAR, the International Foundation for Art Research. Up to this point, none of the works brought in by Glafira Rosales had been subjected to forensic scrutiny. Anne Friedman was so convinced of the work's authenticity that she readily agreed to the Levy's terms. The work was already owned by Jack Levy, so Nodler was not, quote, the client or the person who submitted the work to IFAR. There's a lot of misunderstanding in the field about that. I am Sharon Flesher. I'm executive director of the International Foundation for Art Research, which is much better known under the acronym IFAR. IFAR's experts provide a thorough and impartial analysis of visual works of art through provenance research and forensic testing. IFAR is also well known for their pioneering work in art theft, having created the first database of stolen art. I spoke with Sharon in her corner office overlooking the New York Public Library. IFAR, now a 50-year-old institution, works with researchers and forensics experts to help authenticate artwork submitted from all over the world. Jack Levy purchased his Pollock from the Nodler with no inkling that it might be fake. Signing up for an IFAR analysis was a mere legal nicety, or so he thought. Despite the many Pollocks that came through IFAR, Sharon too had no doubts that the Levy Pollock would prove to be right. My initial assumption was, of course, this would be great. We're going to find a new Pollock because it, would, it never entered my mind that a work that wouldn't be good would have been sold through the Nodler Gallery. Sharon was unaware of the deal Jack Levy had struck with Anne Friedman and Nodler, but to her, having the sale of the Pollock be contingent upon IFAR's determination of authenticity made a lot of sense. My logic said to me that someone who purchases a seven-figure work from a reputable gallery, if the work turns out not to be what that person hopes and expects it to be, that they will turn right around to the gallery and try to get their money back. Usually, when a buyer asks a gallery for their money back, the gallery writes them a check instantly, as a matter of course. Reputations, after all, are at stake. But what if the gallery insists the painting is real and refuses to give the buyer their money back? Acting on her gut, Sharon took an extra measure to protect herself and IFAR. I insisted that the Nodler Gallery sign an agreement saying they would not sue because there would be nothing protecting us because if we didn't come up with the positive review, I assumed we would, I could just see exactly what would happen. It would be returned, he'd get the money back, and then the gallery would say, well, how can you prove that it's not? You're defaming our name, our character, whatever. It was just a vision I had. And so I insisted that they sign something, and they did. IFAR began working on the Levy Pollock using the same methods they would apply to any painting submitted for authenticity. There are some steps that are consistent for every painting, and then each project takes on a slight life of its own. So we are very committed in general to what I like to think of as a three-pronged process, which is scholarly research, connoisseurship, the expert eyes. We had actually quite a few specialists who examined this work, in some cases more than once, and the physical properties of the work which sometimes includes a detailed lab examination, forensic examination. 
Right away, the scholarly research aspect of Ifar's work turned up red flags. For starters, the painting's lack of provenance was a problem for Sharon. We were sent the skimpiest possible provenance information that one can be sent for a work that is of a major artist and of seven-figure value. (laughs) Essentially nothing. And I actually personally called Anne. I knew Anne and called her to give them the benefit of the doubt, saying we can be more helpful on this project if you supply more information to us. And at that time, she actually said, you're researching the provenance? And I said, of course, we always research the provenance. What did you think? And she said, I thought you would just bring experts together to look at the work and say whether it was good. I said, we're doing that as well. But of course, we research the provenance. Anne was in a predicament. Ifar's work was thorough and consistent. And because Jack Levy had officially submitted the work to Ifar, not Nodler, there was nothing Anne could do to finesse her way out of the problems sitting on Sharon's desk. The deeper Ifar dug into the history of the Levy Pollock, the more nervous Anne seemed to become. For Sharon, the backstory just wasn't adding up. It was just simply said and relayed to us. It was acquired through Osorio. This was it. The Osorio story, conjured up by Glafira Rosales, had now made its way through Anne Friedman to Sharon and Ifar. Alfonso Osorio had died, but his longtime partner Ted Dragon was still alive. So I contacted Dragon simply to find out after he lived with Osorio for many years. Could he provide information? Is he familiar with this work? Is he aware of Osorio ever having dealt with it? And what was Ted Dragon's reaction? He had never seen the work. He didn't think there was any connection whatsoever to Osorio because had there been, given his intimate relationship with Osorio over so many years, and particularly at that period, that he would have known if there was a connection. And we did other research as well, and we could find nothing to substantiate the Osorio connection. The Osorio provenance was crumbling under scrutiny from IFAR. The whole notion of Osorio serving as a middleman between dealers and artists went nowhere. But what about the painting itself? This particular work was canvas mounted on masonite, which is a type of fiberboard. Pollock did have canvases mounted on masonite. In this case, it was mounted on the rough side of the masonite. Most of the ones of his that were mounted were mounted on the smooth side of the masonite. But he also painted directly on masonite. I can tell you that one of the specialists who examined this work immediately was upset. They felt that it was mounted on that masonite just so that we couldn't see the back of the canvas. (laughs) That's why they're doing it, you know, to hide this. I put here on the cover a detail of the painting. Sharon was showing me the cover of one of IFAR's publications from 2016 titled 2020 Hindsight, Lessons from the Nodler-Rosales Affair. On the cover are two rectangular photos of Jackson Pollock's signatures on paintings. Red arrows indicate that one is an actual Pollock, the other a fake. The photos are zoomed in to show the detail of the signature itself and the canvas. Here's a signature, Jackson Pollock 49, that's signed on that painting. And this is the bottom you can see here. Here's the canvas and here's the masonite. When Pollock did it, First of all, he did it on the other side of the masonite, on the smooth side, and he put some sizing on it. And over the 50-year period from 1949 to 2000, the masonite with his sizing had aged and colored completely differently than the masonite in this work. How interesting. Wow. So you really had, there was maybe a first red flag for sure. It was more than a first red flag. We already had some red flags. As I said earlier, not just the provenance, 
any connection whatsoever to Pollock? Are there photo archives that show this work in the background? Are there letters that mention a work that fits this description? We did all of that. These were the kind of telltale details that led IFAR to issue its shocking opinion. We said we cannot accept the work as a work by Jackson Pollock. It is the same as saying I'm writing a catalog raisonné and I'm not including your work in the catalog raisonné. We couched our words because we couldn't hammer that nail in the coffin absolutely. Anne was pretty ticked, was she not? Did she not speak publicly and disparage IFAR and She certainly spoke privately and disparaged us to people because it got back to me all the time. Years later, when she felt free to talk about the Levy Pollock and IFAR's rejection of it, Anne would blithely say, quote, there was a recent history of bad feelings between IFAR and Nodler, unquote. IFAR's experts were biased, Anne implied. That was why IFAR had nixed the painting. Where I felt she impugned our integrity by saying there was a history of bad feelings, therefore she wanted to dismiss what we said. First of all, there was no history of bad feelings that I knew of, and certainly not during my tenure, and I had already been here a few years. But more importantly, to assert that even if there were bad feelings, it might change our report. I was incredulous that anyone would make such a statement because we only exist because of our good name and our reputation for integrity. We're not going to sully it, and I'm not going to let anyone else sully it. With IFAR's final judgment on the Levy... Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit bartesian.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Pollock in 2003 and took the painting back very discreetly. She returned the $2 million to Jack Levy. Contractually, she had no choice. Shortly after the sale was refunded, Anne called a Canadian collector, David Mervish, with news that she had a wonderful deal for him. Anne was absolutely sure, she said, that Ifar had been wrong and that the painting was legitimate. To back up her claim, Anne suggested that she herself buy a one-third interest 
in untitled 1949. The gallery would buy a partial share, as would Mervish. Certainly they would sell the painting at some point for a fortune. Mervish agreed, and untitled 1949 was duly put aside for that future day, its IFAR status kept quiet. But the damage was done. As Anne later said in Vanity Fair, quote, it was a backfire because Ted Dragon went crazy. Osorio would never have hidden anything from me, unquote. That cast a pall over the painting and the whole story of Osorio as middleman for Mr. and Mrs. X. Anne asked Glafira, could Mr. and Mrs. X have been wrong? Had they or their son confused Osorio with someone else? Glafira promised to address the issue and then came back with a change in the story. More in a minute. What grows in the forest? Trees? Sure. Know what else grows in the forest? Our imagination, our sense of wonder, and our family bonds grow too. Because when we disconnect from this and connect with this, we reconnect with each other. The forest is closer than you think. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hey, hey, this is John O'Brien, entrepreneur and a fellow builder just like you. Thanks to the help of iHeartRadio and Prudential Financial, I'd like to present to you my brand new podcast. It's called Building the Good Life, where each week a special friend and I will unpack and talk in detail about financial literacy, building generational wealth, building back community, building the best version of you, life lessons, and whatever else is on your mind. That's right. This is a time for you to become the best version of who you are, using some of the best leaders in the world to do it as they unpack and show a special side of themselves you've never seen before. So if you're ready to build the best version of you, you're ready to build the next generation of what comes next, make sure to listen to Building the Good Life on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Arden Marine from Shameless, Insatiable, Chelsea Lately, and the iHeartRadio podcast, Will You Accept This Rose? And I'm Julianne Robinson, an Emmy and BAFTA-nominated director, most recently of Bridgerton. And we are the hosts of Lady of the Road, a funny and inspiring podcast where we have conversations with influential women about their lives and we get self-help advice. We're always looking to improve ourselves and we figure there's no better source for learning how to be brave, take risks, and advocate for yourself in life and speaking with motivating, uplifting women. Some of whom we've met throughout our careers and some of whom we're just meeting now. We talk about money, health, relationships, parenthood, running a business, you name it, from inspiring women like Joan Jett, Nicole Byer, Lauren Lopkist, Retta, Ricky Lindholm, Kate Micucci, Kate Walsh, Shondaland producer Betsy Beers, Adua Ando, Jen Kirkman, and more. Listen and subscribe to Lady of the Road on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As it turned out, Anne was right. Osorio had been in the mix, but only marginally so. Glafira said the dealer who had handled most of those paintings for Mr. and Mrs. X was actually an art handler named David Herbert. She was so sorry for any confusion. This is one of those iffy moments in the story where you raise not one but two eyebrows and think, wait a minute, how were you not suspicious when the entire backstory suddenly shifted? That's author Maria Konnikova again. It shows a few things. The part of the con artists, obviously, it shows great ingenuity and once again, listening, because Anne inadvertently told them what to say, because she said, these are the holes. These are the things that people are suspicious of. And she even had suggestions, right? Maybe was it this? Was it that? So she threw out things that they could then use. Once again, the con artists here, your job is to listen and to figure out, okay, what do I need to change? What are they reacting to? What's working? What's not working? 
David Herbert working, wonderful. Let's keep him in and try to figure out, you know, how how we can change the story to the elements that aren't working to fill in the parts of the narrative that are causing us problems. Now, the other element, of course, is if you're Anne, how in the world do you not see this? One of the things that I've argued over and over again is that it's impossible to judge from the outside because from the outside, you're objective. From the inside, once you're already in the middle of it, once you're already emotionally involved, your objectivity is gone. It's really difficult. It takes a very specific, strong person who probably would not have gotten into this situation to begin with to be able to see clearly in the heat of the moment. And most people just cannot do that. I think that she was already so deep in the con that it didn't strike her as weird. It just struck her as, we're getting more information. It's on a need-to-know basis. As I need to know more, they, they tell me more. Whereas for us, when we're looking at this, we're shaking our heads and thinking, wait, no, no, you're not allowed to change the story. If you're Anne, you're thinking, oh, okay, that makes sense. Great, wonderful. David Herbert, now the key figure in the backstory, was a brilliant choice. He was a real person whose modest life and times fit the larger story, a dealer many in the art world had known. Almost certainly Anne had heard about Herbert through Jaime Andrade, since Herbert had been Andrade's best friend for decades. Also convenient, David Herbert had died just seven years prior in 1995. His executor? None other than Jaime Andrade. Into Andrade's hands went all of Herbert's files upon his death. Possibly those files contained bits that might embellish Glafira's story of Mr. and Mrs. X. From what Anne now understood, David Herbert had been more than a middleman between downtown artists and Mr. X setting up sales and taking commissions. Herbert had been Mr. X's lover during long periods in the 1950s in New York. Once again, for Anne, the result was the opportunity to access newly discovered masterpieces. One key link between David Herbert and the art world he inhabited was the legendary dealer Sidney Janis. After a humble start in the garment industry, Janis had made his fortune by inventing a two-pocket men's Oxford shirt. His true passion, however, was contemporary art. That led him to become a dealer, eventually representing many of the mid-century greats. In 1948, he opened a fifth-floor gallery on 57th Street, down the hall from another emerging and important dealer, Betty Parsons. Much to Parsons' indignation, by 1952, some of her top artists had left her stable and moved down the hall to Sidney Janis. She was more of an artist than, than a dealer. She couldn't quite sell any of the works of the artists. That was the problem. That's Carol Janis, one of Sidney Janis's two sons who worked in the gallery with his father for years. One of the artists who came down the hall from Betty Parsons was Jackson Pollock. Carol's father liked Pollock's work. He was also sympathetic to the struggles that came with being an artist. He bought a little painting from him during that year, in 44. He told me that he bought it because Pollock was so poor that he just felt that he should buy something. To Betty Parsons' lifelong fury, Pollock would move to the Sidney Janis Gallery for the remainder of his career. Mark Rothko came down the hall, too, after issuing a modest plea. He told Sidney Janis that he had to earn $7,500 a year to support his family. Could the Janis Gallery promise him that much? Janis thought it was possible. In the first year, he made $15,000. Wow. And he was in seventh heaven. That was big money in 1952, over $150,000 today. Most downtown artists survived on a lot less, some so strapped that they sold paintings out of the back door, as it were, privately, without the involvement of their dealer. That was how David Herbert played into the story. Herbert was no figment of Anne Friedman's imagination. He was an art insider who, at different times in the 1950s, 
worked for both Betty Parsons and Carol's father, Sidney Janis. Herbert brought clients to various artist studios, introduced those clients to the artists, and handled the occasional backdoor selling of paintings to help them scrape by in tough times. He was about 5'9". I think he had a little mustache. He worked with Betty for a couple of years, I suppose, <laughs> partly as an art handler and partly to talk to clients coming in. He was not very successful with Betty. But Betty came over and somehow talked my dad into giving him a job, which he did give him. He was also gregarious and liked to talk to the clients. Then what he started to do was to take clients to artist studios and try to sell them works out of the studios. At first, Sidney Janis didn't mind. It was something he was doing, and as long as he was doing it with any of the hundreds of artists in New York who were not with the gallery, and ah. didn't say anything. Unfortunately, David Herbert's eagerness to help these far-flung artists, and perhaps to profit from them, led to a bad end. Carol recalls Herbert handling money for one very important artist who was, in fact, a Janus artist, Willem de Kooning. De Kooning came to Dad and asked him for an advance for his studio. Dad gave him what he asked for, $50,000. So then the next year he came and he asked again for another 50000 And then that was quite a lot in those days. He told him no, he wouldn't lend it to him. So that meant de Kooning had to start selling out of his studio. Because he needed the money to pay for the uh, gallery. Yeah, yeah. And, and oh, the studio, right? Yeah, handle that directly because he loved the Kooning and the Kooning loved the gallery. But now they were at odds because he was selling out of his studio, but not giving the gallery its commission. And David Herbert was in the thick of it, paying the Kooning for works the painter was selling for money he desperately needed. Herbert had to go. So when my dad found out about that, he, well, he, he let him go immediately. It was easy to imagine how Anne Friedman could have believed the story of Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. A feckless art handler who bought and sold works on his own. 
By the 1970s and 80s, almost everyone in the art world knew of David Herbert. He remained a droll character from the same demimonde as Alfonso Osorio and Jaime Andrade. Painter Bill Draper would give two-day parties, as one dealer says, and Herbert would be there, along with his dear friends Jaime Andrade and Richard Brown Baker. There, too, would be Brooke Astor, Mayor John Lindsay, and art maven Marion Javits. It was an indulgent and freer time. By then, Herbert had begun to struggle. He threw in with the distinguished dealer Richard Feigen for a short-lived venture. No managerial skills at all, Feigen later grumbled. Despite his lack of funds, Herbert never lost his sense of humor. He would come into the Nodler and pretend he was a collector, it calls a Nodler staffer. Herbert would say, I'm furious that Nodler has not delivered my art for three months. I've been calling, I've paid for it already, unquote. He was funny, says the staffer. By the time David Herbert died, in 1995, he'd become almost destitute. He had a very hard last couple of years, recalls a friend from his gallery. He was basically living on friends and really had no retirement money. As long as David Herbert was alive, these paintings weren't going to come out, and Friedman said in Vanity Fair, quote, The fear was that if the paintings came out while Herbert was alive, Herbert might have been extremely upset, and he might have revealed the identity of the owner. There's no question that the paintings would have been paid for with cash, taxes not paid, assets not declared. And you can go to jail for that, end quote. So sure was Anne about the newly modified backstory that she even gave a new name to the paintings coming from Glyphera Rosales. The paintings, she said, now constituted the David Herbert collection. Once David Herbert passed away, Anne said, that's when Mr. X Jr. felt he could release these paintings. More than one Nodler staffer saw a victim in retrospect, Jaime Andrade. Perhaps Andrade had told Anne stories of his old friend David Herbert. Maybe he had acknowledged that Herbert might have sold some of these paintings on the sly. Still, if he had colluded with Anne and Glyphera, where was the profit in it for him? Jaime did not profit from it. He never got a commission, so there's nothing on him, says an ex-Nodler staffer. He was horrified by all that happened, the staffer adds. I feel very sorry for him. He's a gentleman of the older kind. And now all Andrade had was a ghostly, cobwebbed apartment filled with South American art next door to the gallery he'd loved so much. As for David Herbert, he too seemed a victim, even if a posthumous one. It's very easy to put something on him because he's not around to dispute it, said Herbert's friend from the gallery. What should have been early red flags at the Nodler Gallery, those early Diebenkorn drawings, that brilliant Rothko, and now the returned Levy Pollock instead remained art world secrets, for now. None of them stirred any attention because sales of the works remained confidential. As it turned out, the Levy Pollock that Ifar had judged to be not a legitimate work was actually one of several Pollocks that Anne Friedman would eventually snatch up from Glyphera Rosales. More art fraud in a minute. Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure and pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. And they see you, their fearless guide through this fascinating world. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hey there, I'm Scott Rank, host of the podcast History Unplugged. And if you're dreaming of being a full-time podcaster someday, you and I have a lot in common. I used to teach history for a living, which was great, but I wanted something more. And maybe you know what I mean. So I gave podcasting a try, and I did it with Spreaker from iHeart. I could explain how it works in about 90 seconds, but all you really need to know now is that in my experience, 
the ad revenue with Spreaker has been three to four times higher than it has been with any other host I've worked with. Now I get to do what I'm passionate about, teach history, but with more freedom and less stress while still earning a respectable salary. From just getting started and doing the very basic stuff to taking your podcast in whatever direction you want to take it, Spreaker has all sorts of great tools. So if you want to turn your passion into a podcast and give this a try, visit Spreaker.com. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com. Get paid to talk about the things you love with Spreaker from iHeart. From Cavalry Audio, the studio that brought you The Devil Within and The Shadow Girls, comes a new true crime podcast, The Pink Moon Murders. The local sheriff believes there may be more than one killer. It's been four days since those bodies were found, and there's no arrest as of this morning. They were afraid, especially out in that area. What if they come back or whatever? It scared me to death. Like, it scared me. It, I was very, very intimidated to live here. Crazy to think you go to sleep one night, maybe snuggling with your loved one, and never wake up. Or maybe you wake up in a struggle for your life, which you lose. Join host David Ratterman as he explores one fateful night when evil descended upon small-town Ohio. Killed eight members of an Ohio family in a pre-planned execution. A family was targeted, most of them targeted while they were sleeping. Follow The Pink Moon Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. No one knew the true story of the Nodler Gallery's finances. Later, when the gallery's money manager testified at trial, he would say that the paintings of the David Herbert collection were not merely helpful to the gallery's bottom line, they were essential. Without those sales, the Nodler would have been losing big money by 2004. Thanks to Glafira's paintings, the Nodler was at least getting by. Joe Stevens, the Nodler's long-serving art handler, sensed the true state of the gallery when he was abruptly fired after nearly 45 years on the job. My heart and soul was in that place. I loved working there, and I was good at it. To be honest, I wanted to kill her. I hated her guts, and I don't hate anybody. But she made life miserable for me and the girls by keeping him there. Every She walked three blocks and she's home. I think she knew that I knew things were going on. That's probably why I got dumped. I don't know for sure. Can we put it that way as your suspicion? Yeah, yeah. Anne was now squarely focused on selling works from the David Herbert collection, and that was becoming a very dangerous enterprise. By 2005, the contemporary art market had soared, thanks to a five-fold increase in new billionaires since the 1980s. And the billionaires loved contemporary art. They loved the status it conferred, too. Most of all, they loved the profits many contemporary artists were generating. The new meme was art as an asset. The market was now more than a place to buy and sell art. It was a lifestyle. Wealthy collectors jetted to art fairs around the world, greeting each other like old friends. They attended glittering parties held by the biggest and most powerful dealers at the Venice Biennale, at Art Basel in Switzerland, and at the Freeze Fairs in London, L.A., and New York. Entree to the club didn't require old money or expertise in art. Not anymore. All you needed to join the club was money and a willingness to spend it. Art has become the status symbol, as dealer Gavin Brown put it, the lingua franca of the wealthy. At some point in the early 2000s, Glafira and Carlos attempted to open their own gallery in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York City. It was a loft on 19th Street. Carlos called it King's Fine Art. Records suggest he staged exactly one opening, a trio of Cuban-American artists who went nowhere. Glafira found the gallery ridiculous. You know, he was a show-off and he wants to <laughs> presume that uh, he was a businessman, of course. Did you work with him at that gallery or no? Well, not really. Like I say, it was occasionally in, in, and he was the one who was putting it together. 
the Chelsea loft that Carlos opened was a Bush League effort to join the art market in earnest. Serious dealers, those who, for starters, dealt in authentic art, were in a whole other world, one that Carlos and Glafira could only dream of. By now, the best abstract expressionist works were all but impossible to acquire, unless you were willing to pay stratospheric prices. Hedge fund manager Ken Griffin would become famous for buying a de Kooning and a Pollock in a package deal for $500 million. With all this frenzy, the contemporary art market rose from roughly $20 billion in 2000 to $63 billion in 2008. In the midst of this hyperactive market, Anne had begun publicly showcasing works from the David Herbert collection. The mecca for New York art dealers was the annual Armory Show, hosted by the Art Dealers Association of America, or ADAA. The Park Avenue Armory is a vast, high-vaulted space that once sheltered Union military troops and their horses. Any dealer worth their salt was compelled to rent a booth at the Armory Show. Seemingly confident that her latest works from the David Herbert collection were genuine, Anne began displaying the paintings at each ADAA show. Every time we got a painting from Glafira, we'd hang it in the Nodler's booth at the Armory, Anne later told Vanity Fair. Had anyone found anything wrong, she noted, believe me, I would have been told, take that down off the wall. She would never take more than one of those to the Armory show, notes one ex-staffer. It might be flanked by a great Milton Avery landscape or maybe a Robert Motherwell, so it was surrounded by the creme de la creme with impeccable provenance. It wasn't some podunk Pollock. Another ex-staffer rolls his eyes at that. There was either a Pollock or a Newman on display at the Nodler booth, the staffer recalls of one year's display. People began whispering, you have to go look, but don't say anything. Everyone knew it was fake. Everyone was laughing about it. But as Patricia Cohen of the New York Times notes, they were all instructed by lawyers not to say anything. Why? The fear of being sued. As those brilliant but baffling works kept popping up, Friedman's fellow dealers made a blood sport of speculating about which, if any, of the paintings in the David Herbert collection were real. And why did Anne Friedman keep promoting pictures, one after another, that had no provenance? As one armory show followed another, Anne believed that her paintings were acquiring provenance by simply being exhibited. Dealers found that absurd. Bullshit that it's a building block toward authentication, one dealer snorted. She kept trotting out this shit at the armory shows. I saw the Barnett Newman there, the Rothko there, the Pollock there. All were fake, the dealer muttered to his colleagues. Yet Anne seemed oblivious to their inauthenticity. The dealer said, if you don't have an eye and you don't have the ability to discern differences in an artist's work, you're lost. I don't care how much secondary research you do. Anne left those armory shows with a sense of exultation. Her masterpieces had survived another gauntlet. A few of her rival dealers even threw her a word of affirmation. A vague word or two, but enough for Anne to go on. The Levy Pollock declared all but fake by Ifar had incensed Anne. Worse, it had jeopardized the business she'd worked so hard to keep afloat. The Nodler needed a miracle. Magically, Glafira would conjure up a Jackson Pollock painting so brilliant that no one would cast doubt on its authenticity. One that would ultimately command the highest price ever paid for a work emerging from Pei Shen Kwan's garage in Queens. It must have been January 2020, and he started talking to me about the Nodler case. He was wearing a tuxedo, so was I. It was a big formal wedding. And I said, well, somebody told me that Pierre Lagrange was a really stupid person. I said, I think that buying a painting from Ann Friedman, he must be a real dumb shit. He got screwed for $17 million, and he looked at me and he said, I'm Pierre Lagrange. <laughs> the $17 million Jackson Pollock. That's next time on Art Fraud. Love laughs at a king. Kings don't mean a thing. 
on the street of dreams Dreams broken in two Can be made like new On the street of dreams Art Fraud is brought to you by iHeartRadio and Cavalry Audio. Our executive producers are Matt Del Piano, Keegan Rosenberger, Andy Turner, myself, and Michael Schneerson. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed this episode. Lindsay Hoffman is our managing producer. Our writer is Michael Schneerson. Hi, this is Bill Clinton. After years of being interviewed, I'm looking forward to doing the interviewing. Please join me on Why Am I Telling You This for conversations with some of the most fascinating people I know. We'll share stories and talk about ideas that deserve more attention and why we should be hopeful and optimistic about our future. Listen to Why Am I Telling You This on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Cavalry Audio, the studio that brought you The Devil Within and The Shadow Girls, comes a new true crime podcast, The Pink Moon Murders. The local sheriff believes there may be more than one killer. They were afraid, especially out in that area. A family was targeted, most of them targeted while they were sleeping. Who could commit such horrible crimes and why? Follow The Pink Moon Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Look through your children's eyes, and you will discover the true magic of a forest. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Hey, guys. You know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.